So I hear that you were rescued. <laughs> we're just getting right into it. <laughs> Hi, Nancy. I mean, not that like you're like a rescue, like a rescue dog. You were telling us <laughs> one time you actually were in a situation oh where you had to be rescued. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, I um when I was like oh, let's say like eleven, I went um whitewater rafting with my like I have a bunch of older brothers and my father and they used to do this all the time and it was the first time they ever took me and this whole time I was with my dad and my godfather in a boat and a raft with the guide um, and so we were like the safe boat and all my brothers and all their friends were in other rafts or whatever we get to the very end of this entire course this entire day and they end up uh, my brothers convinced my dad to like put me in the boat with them because they're like we've been great no one's flipped nothing like that we're going down to rock or we're going down to rapids and we end up um hitting a rock and flipping like immediately and this is a rock where people die like every year people get sucked under this thing and so we flip and i'm like going out the river and i'm freaking out and thrashing and i see one of my friends uh, my brother's friends and i like i yell i'm like brian save me <laughs> They must he, not let you live that one. Down. And he, he, to this day, like he pulled me <laughs> off this rock. And every once, like literally to this day, he, um, I see him every once in a while in my hometown when I go home. This is 20 years ago at this point. And I'll, I'll see him like, hey, Shane, remember that time I saved you? And like, thanks, Brian. <laughs> That's really great. <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompy. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. So you have your own personal hero. I do. That's yeah. lovely. I, I can't wait to let him know about it. I, I gotta be tougher than that. You'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks. <laughs> That it's exactly how I speak. You, you, yeah, yeah, dude. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, no big, bro. No big deal. All right. Anyways, so talking about rescues, uh, we're, we're talking about this because we actually have a story today about an unexpected rescue with a bit of a science twist. Uh, so, Lauren, can you kind of tell us where we're going with this? Yeah. So, last year I interviewed a scientist who studies Arctic sea ice. I'm David Babb. I'm a research associate and PhD student at the University of Manitoba in Canada. And I study sea ice dynamics and thermodynamics. So David told me this story about how he and his colleagues were involved in a search and rescue mission in the Arctic Ocean a few years ago. Right. But they like, they didn't set out to do that, right? They're scientists. <laughs> right. No, it was totally <laughs> unexpected. But um, it ha- as it happens, so they do a lot of work on this ship that's an icebreaker in the Canadian Arctic. And so actually, before we get into the rescue mission, you can, it's kind of interesting to hear a little bit about what it's like to live and work on this ship. We spend a lot of time in the Canadian Arctic, both in research camps and on the, uh, the Amundsen, the Canadian icebreaker mm-hmm. that does science research. I love working on the icebreaker. It's great. It's a good group of people, but it's 80 people. And when you're on the icebreaker, it's very, very comfortable. You know, there's chefs from Quebec who make excellent food when they're on the ship. Mm-hmm. There's satellite TV you, you oh, have wow. a very comfortable room with your roommates. You, there's a gym on board. It's, really? It's all very luxurious. It's very, very comfortable. It's hard work when you're out on the ice and out in a skippy boat or out in the Zodiac all day. Mm-hmm. But once you're on the ship, it's very luxurious. So I kind, of like, I kind of like more of the roughing it in some of the other remote field locations. One of my favorite field campaigns has been uh, we worked in Northeast Greenland one year 
the ice had just started to form and we were working with airboats, kind of these, these big fan boats that work in the Everglades. So just like an aluminum boat with a big fan behind it. Okay. And you can kind of cruise through open water or over smooth, thin sea ice. So we, we were walking on thin sea ice all the time and setting up this equipment. You were walking on it? Yeah. What was that? What is and that like? It was pretty wild. The first day out, we stopped the boat and uh, it, sli- it slid for a while over the thin, smooth ice. And, uh, and the guy I was with hopped out of the boat and started walking around on the ice. And I thought he was completely insane. I looked at him. I was like, I'm not, I'm not standing on that ice. There's no way. Uh, but he was a big guy. And I figured if it could hold him, it could hold me. I was going to be okay. One of the things I always think about when I'm out in the Arctic and out on the ice is I mean, you're in one of the most remote areas of the world, right? Like I always think sometimes walking on sea ice is like going to the moon because there's a chance no one has ever walked on this piece of ice ever before. Like you're kind of setting the first footprints. When did you start first going out, you know, on the icebreaker studying sea ice? In the middle of February in 2003, I got to go up to the Canadian Arctic and the Amundsen was actually frozen into the ice cover for that winter. What happens to the ship when it's frozen in the sea ice? And so I'm assuming it, it's pre- at that point it's self-sufficient for as long as it's there, right? Yeah. Or, or do they bring in supplies? Or So the ship has overwintered now in the Canadian Arctic twice. So yeah, basically it's self-sufficient for a year. They wow. had a barge tucked away with extra fuel, so they refueled in spring. But when the planes flew in, they brought, you know, fruits and vegetables and, and resupply, things like that. But basically, the ship has to be totally self-sufficient for a year. There's no Radio Shack or Home Depot to, to whip off to to buy, to buy replacement parts or mm-hmm. two-by-fours if you need to build a new shack or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you have to have everything with you. <laughs> Sometimes when I lay yeah. out my, my bag before I pack, my wife always looks at you know, I've got everything laid out and she looks and she's like, do you really need that many gloves? Like, come on. And I'm like, look, if we're out all day, the gloves get wet, they freeze. You need new gloves. At the end of the day, you need fresh gloves to get back. You need waterproof gloves. If you're working with electronics, you need small kind of gloves that you can make quick moves with your fingers with. Mm -hmm. So I always have tons of gloves. Okay, so David always brings a ton of gloves when he travels. (laughs) What's the, uh, what's like the one thing you can't live without when you travel? Chapstick. Chapstick. And hair ties. Oh. Yeah. That's a good one. Mine goes back to a previous episode. Oh, yeah? My glasses. Oh. Oh, yes. Actually, books is a really good one. As an avid reader, it, like, causes me great stress um, to make sure I have enough books that I even had to get a Kindle so I can make sure that I have a full stock library. That is very intense. Very important. Very important. What about you? Um, I, so, gel? no, actually, well, no. Oh yes, actually <laughs> I've had to like go to like a like convenience store or something to like get hair gel if I've not gotten it. But like, I have a very specific type that I get. You can only order online. It's very sad. Oh, anyways. Yep. Yeah. No. Wow. <laughs> this is the world in which we live, but what we pack aside, I'm still really fascinated to hear like more about just like what it's like to like, work on an icebreaker. When you're out on the icebreaker, what kinds of things are you measuring and how are you measuring them? As a whole, the Arctic ice cover is declining in extent. But within the ice cover, there's also significant changes that are taking place. The ice cover is becoming younger and thinner. Um, and as a result of that, the ice cover is becoming more mobile and it's changing its physical properties and the way that it's basically its own internal feedback systems are, are changing as the ice cover is declining. Um, so we focus a lot 
on changes in the seasonality of the ice, changes in the thickness, changes in the composition of the ice, and then how that affects the biology and chemistry and physics of the, of the Arctic system. A lot of the work is taking physical ice cores and drilling holes through the ice and doing snow pits and, and sectioning up ice cores to melt them out and look at the structure and look at the, the constituents of the ice cores. Sea ice, um, its physical properties can be different depending on how old it is, right? Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so when you take open seawater and you, you freeze it, it starts to solidify and you start to build an ice cover. And that ice over winter grows to about one and a half to two meters thick. And that's called just pure thermodynamic sea ice growth. That's temperature-driven sea ice growth. Um, during the following spring, the ice cover starts to melt. Most of that first-year ice melts out, but some of it is able to persist through summer and remain intact into the fall when the ice cover starts to form and freeze up again. And once ice, the, an ice flow has survived through one summer, it becomes what's known as multi-year sea ice. And as the ice gets older and survives more and more summers, it theoretically grows thicker and thicker and stronger. If you're on the icebreaker, what's kind of like your typical day? Like, what, what does that look like for you? Typical day on the icebreaker, one of the, one of the big things is always finding the right flow to work on. So what is a big solid flow that we can spend the day on and that the ship can pull up beside and get us off onto safely? So it usually starts kind of about 6.30 in the morning. You go up to the bridge and talk with the officers and the captain and you start to scout where the ice is and what sort of conditions we've gotten into overnight. Uh, then we go down for breakfast, come back up and... Uh, start to pick a flow. And when you're looking for a good flow, you want a nice big solid flow that looks thick enough. Uh, you also want to avoid areas with cracks because once there's cracks, the flow could break up. And if you're on a piece of ice that's no longer connected back to the ship, it's just a hassle <laughs> to get you back. Have you ever been stranded like that? No, I haven't, fortunately. <laughs> um, I've heard lots of stories, but I've personally never been stranded. Usually we're kind of unloaded off the side of the ship by a crane. We have a, it's called an ice cage. It's a big steel cage that you put two or three people into with some equipment and it hooks up to a crane on the foredeck of the ship and lowers you over the side down onto the ice and you unload and you, wow. you usually make three or four trips depending on how many people are coming out. Sometimes we're only on the ice for two or three hours. Other times we're on the ice for, you know, 10, 12 hours. Wow. And you do, you do all your sampling, ice cores, ice thickness transects, um, snow depth profiles, all that sort of stuff, water sampling. Off the ship, we also use the helicopter a lot. So you fly off and you land with the helicopter on the ice and then you spend the day or a couple hours out there with the helicopter collecting your samples and then you pack up the helicopter and fly back to the ship and uh, yeah, it's nice. It sounds awesome. Yeah. It sounds amazing. What do you do if you have to pee? So peeing in the field is always one big issue. <laughs> it's, it's easy for males. It's... An, an issue for females 
Yeah, I, I work with some females who basically dehydrate themselves so that they don't need to pee when they're on the field. And then eventually you realize that that's not sustainable and, uh, and whatever. You're out in the field and you just, you make the best with what you can do. <laughs> I feel like this is becoming an unexpected theme of Lauren asking scientists how they pee in the field. <laughs> well, it's an important question. How do you do it? It's I feel legit. like this is never addressed in things like films or, or anything where they have to, you know, do things out in the field. No. You know? I always want to know. Totally. You know. That's fair. All yeah. right. All or right. maybe I just always have to pee during these interviews. Maybe, maybe that's it. <laughs> that could yeah. be it. But getting back to this whole search and rescue, I hope it wasn't someone like peeing and falling over the side that they had oh, to like no. search and rescue. <laughs> no, that would be awful. No. Um, it was actual like search and rescue, like people being stranded. Um, so they were on this expedition in 2017. And um, I'll just let David tell you the rest. We were going on a, a six-week scientific cruise departing from the Amundsen's home port in Quebec City along the St. Lawrence River, and we were going out to spend six weeks in Hudson Bay studying the ice and the oceanography of the area. Hudson Bay is located in central Canada. It's this massive inland sea. It's quite shallow, and it forms a seasonal ice cover every year. It's a highly productive area. It's got a, a huge polar bear population and quite a large whale population. There's, uh, I believe, the largest pod of beluga whales wow. lives in Hudson Bay. We departed Quebec City and we were heading up the St. Lawrence and basically you head up the St. Lawrence to Newfoundland, you hang a left, you go up the coast of Labrador, you get to the entrance of Hudson Strait and you hang a left and you're in Hudson Bay. And we were going to work there for six weeks. But during that winter, there was kind of this anomalous ice cover that started to develop around Newfoundland and we were made aware of it before we left, but the thought was that it wasn't really going to affect us too much. And what do you mean by an anomalous ice cover? Oh, uh, okay, yeah. So it was, a, it was a thicker than usual ice cover in this area. So normally Newfoundland, it's quite far south, kind of grows a local ice cover that's comprised of thin first-year ice. So we're talking ice that's 30 to 50 centimeters thick, difficult for fishing boats that aren't ice-strengthened to get through and, and potentially dangerous for them. But usually that ice cover is gone by kind of April or May and the, the open water shipping season and the crabbing ships can get out and begin their, their summer work. But in 2017, the ice cover was thicker. There was, there was more multi or sea ice within it, which is unusual for the area. And uh, basically the ice cover wasn't melting out. And so as the Amundsen passed through the area, this ice cover was still intact. And we, we got called off our, our transit for a couple days to, to break ice for a ferry that goes between Newfoundland and mainland Labrador, providing resupply and connecting people from these remote communities there. Uh, and then we were about to head north and we got called back to escort an oil tanker through the ice. Because again, these communities basically get cut off for winter when the ice is intact. And then ships need to start resupplying them with fuel and food and building supplies and things like that. And so this oil tanker needed to get through the ice to a community. So we got called back down south to escort the, the tanker. And then fishing vessels started to try to sneak their way through the ice, trying to get out to the, uh, the area where they harvest crab. And a few of the fishing vessels got stuck in the ice and actually two ended up sinking. Seeing pictures... Um, you know, you, you envision a typical ice pack. There's, there's larger pieces of ice. They're all smashed up and broken up. And in the middle, the ship had already sank. But you could see all the buoys and all the floats and sort of 
a little bit of an oil slick in between the, the ice flows and you could see the footprints of, of basically where the guys had been walking around on the ice flow. So it's kind of surreal to see, to see this image knowing that there was a boat there just a matter of hours before. And then everything sort of scattered. You know, the lifeboat had been pulled up on the ice. They had, they had made a tent out on the ice. Fortunately, the people were able to abandon the ships out onto the ice and they were rescued by helicopter. But basically it was deemed that the Amundsen needed to stay in the area and provide search and rescue capabilities. And it was really the only icebreaker in the area that could respond through this ice cover to the, the people. Fortunately, the Amundsen is a fully outfitted research icebreaker. And we were on board with 40 scientists ready to study sea ice. And the issue that we ran into was sea ice. So we were able to spend <laughs> two days figuring out what was happening and why, why this ice was there, uh, what its physical properties were, and kind of provide a better handle of what was happening in the area. What then was the cause of all this massive, all the sea ice, you know, choking the water in 2017? Why was that such a strange year? But a lot of the ice cover is mobile and it's constantly moving under the force of winds and ocean currents and internal stresses and things like that. So ice is transported. So ice can be transported great distances. What we found was that ice had been transported from these high Arctic areas over 3,000 kilometers towards Newfoundland during one winter season. And once it made its way towards Newfoundland, there was a series of storms that passed through the North Atlantic and they blew this ice on shore into an area where it typically doesn't exist. And that ice was able to, to stay along the northeast coast of Newfoundland and persist for longer into the melt season and, and presented these hazardous conditions. So is it unusual for ice to travel that far in a single season? It's not unusual, but more of it was transported in 2017. Now, one of the things that limits the transport of maltier ice, this older, thicker ice, out of the Arctic towards these southern areas is it has to pass through Nair Strait or Lancaster Sound, which are both fairly narrow channels in the, in the, the Canadian Arctic. And historically, the ice cover in these areas would lock up and form ice arches. Mm -hmm. So this is like a narrow channel. The ice gets compressed into it, and it, it solidifies into an arch. And basically, that prevents old ice from being flushed through these areas towards southerly latitudes and these arches would hold back the maltier ice and these arches would persist throughout most of winter. What's been happening lately is throughout the Arctic there's several examples of this. These ice arches aren't forming like they used to and so you're getting increased transport of this older thicker ice out of the the high Arctic and the Canadian Arctic into these marginal seas such as Baffin Bay and then once those thick pieces of ice enter those areas, they're able to be advected southward towards areas that typically don't have to deal with, with sea ice like this. But yeah, sort of a, a, a good reminder that sea ice is a, you know, presents a real hazard to ships. Ships yeah. that aren't built to handle ice don't do well in the ice, especially as the ice flows start to, to converge and move together. There's a lot of force that can happen within the ice. Um, and ships, a lot of ships just can't handle that. What was it like for you and, and the other scientists on board getting to witness this search and rescue? It's kind of cool as a scientist, you get to see the Coast Guard go into full search and rescue mode, right? There was one day where we were escorting ships and there was Hercules flying above doing aerial reconnaissance and there was another Coast Guard vessel out in the open water just kind of being present in the area. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of, 
you get the feeling like you're a part of this bigger search and rescue mission, right? This bigger Coast Guard activity. So a little bit of a different uh, scale, a little bit of a different oh, operation than no. your search and rescue that you uh, were involved in. No, it's, in. it's <laughs> not me like tumbling down a stream in like a <laughs> foot of water. <laughs> that actually, I mean, your story reminded me, we went whitewater rafting when I lived in North Carolina with my friends and we just t- did it on ourselves. Like, but there were guides who obviously knew the right way to go down the <laughs> river and we just went right down the middle. <laughs> and the one, Ooh. the one woman who we were with, who was like terrified and never by whitewater rafting, hmm, guess who fell out of the... Yes, you fell out of the boat. Of course. Ah, of course. Of course. <laughs> she okay? Yes. We just like pull her back in. It was like, you know. <laughs> of course it's going to happen. <laughs> all right. So that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Lauren for bringing us this story. And of course to David for sharing his work with us. And as always, the podcast is produced with help from Josh Pfizer, Olivia Ambrosio, Liza Lester, and Katie Brundle. And thanks to Kayla Surrey for producing this episode. We would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please rate and review us. Um, Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, always at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all. And we'll see you next time. 